Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This event was recorded at the 2017 AWP conference in Washington, D.C. The recording features Paul Munden, Jen Webb, Randall Albers, Paul Hetherington, and Lori A. May. You will now hear Paul Munden provide introductions. Okay, welcome, welcome everyone to this um, session on preparing creative writing graduates for lifelong careers. And we're going to be looking at this very much from an international perspective. I'm Paul Munden and I'm director of NARWAY, the National Association of Writers in Education, which is the equivalent in the UK of AWP. And I'm joined on the panel um, from Canada on the far left. This is in order of how people are going to speak. Um, we have Laurie A. May from the University of King's College, Halifax. From Australia, we have Jen Webb, who's director of the Centre for Creative and Cultural Research at the University of Canberra. From the US, we have Randall Albers, who's professor and chair emeritus at Columbia College, Chicago. And also from Australia, Paul Hetherington, who is Professor of Writing at the University of Canberra and Head of the International Poetry Studies Institute, which is based there. And I want to start just by acknowledging um, two important things. First, that I think there's perhaps a public perception that creative writing programmes prepare you for very little other than a life of disappointment. And secondly, completely in opposition to that, the fact that creative writing is perhaps the ultimate transferable skill. It's one of the most useful things you could possibly study. All of which suggests to me that we're either underselling it or maybe selling it in the wrong way. Because if we rely on stories um, of certain graduates gaining high-profile publishing contracts, that's a risky way to go because you know, even a 10% success rate also equals a 90% failure rate. So I'd like to start by um, quoting a few things from this publication from 2013, which is a report on creative writing in British universities with responses from senior academics within um, around 20 different institutions. And if you're interested in, in, in reading it in greater detail, it is downloadable free from the Norway website. Um, and it says, creative graduates are considered to be articulate, able to express themselves both verbally and in writing, creative, independent, problem solvers, engaged, enthusiastic, and aware of the world around them. They're team workers with good presentation skills, creative, imaginative, and self-disciplined, critical thinkers, aware of the wider writing business, and excellent communicators. They're well-equipped for further study in a whole range of disciplines, for teaching, reviewing, editing, organizing literary events, using writing as therapy, working in the creative industries or arts administration, or in almost any number of traditional graduate jobs. And graduates go into a wide range of careers where communication skills, creativity, and independence of mind are valued. For example, newspapers, magazines, PR, advertising, TV, radio, theater, literary agencies, libraries, booksellers, web and games design, and of course teaching. 
And uh, a poet at one of the top universities who was contributing to this report intriguingly cites joblessness as something for which creative writing graduates are uniquely well prepared. And you can imagine where critics might go with that as a headline. But actually, it was said in all seriousness to describe the high level of inner resourcefulness which creative writing graduates have. As the report says, in learning to construct a variety of human narratives within their studies, they are perhaps better equipped than most in finding their own personal ways through even the most difficult of times. And we sure are in the most difficult of times. And I'd like to add to that a further comment um, by a former chair of Norway, Maggie Butt, who says this, our students are coming out of university with all the skills which constitute true graduateness and more. Often they have delved deep into themselves and faced their demons. They have experienced the joy and despair and hopefully they develop their ability to write well, to express themselves with clarity and vividness in a range of genres, a skill which can be applied to writing a good business report as much as to writing fiction and satisfaction which comes and, and and satisfaction which, which comes with any creative activity. They are humanities students in the broadest sense. They've stood in the shoes of others by reading their poetry, plays and prose, and by the imagin imaginative act of creating fictional characters of their own. A small minority choose the writer's life, perhaps going on to postgraduate study, aiming to become recognized as playwrights, novelists or poets, and usually supplementing their income with some other day job. Some of our students have gone directly into work as professional writers, journalists, advertising copywriters, scriptwriters, dramatists. Others have chosen to use the insights and skills they've gained as teachers, PR people, art therapists, website designers, book editors and sub-editors, TV researchers, literary agents, librarians, parents. And I think that's a very interesting word she includes at the end of that list. Now, Maggie wrote that article um, in the same year that the Arts Council in England decided to make a big push on professional development for artists generally and gave money to Norway and other organisations to put in place a whole variety of resources and support for those working and studying within the arts. And we set up something called the Writer's Compass an information and advice service for writers. So on the website, there's a whole range of resources, case studies by writers reflecting on how they got to where they are from really quite humble beginnings in some cases. Um, and we list all the opportunities for writers, um, jobs, commissions, residencies, courses, workshops, training events, and we send out a weekly bulletin to all our members so that people get all that information on a plate. So the aim really is to help writers at all stages in their development to build and sustain their careers. So we then worked closely with the universities, sometimes visiting and offering talks and seminars with a careers focus. And increasingly now, UK universities have started to build such things into their own core provision. Writers at Work is the title of one unit offered within the University of East London's BA programme. Many programmes now arrange work placements for their students. One programme with a professional writing focus has 30 publishers, <coughs> agents and writers' organisations offering placements for their students. Some have informal work experience schemes making use of their local small presses and other contacts. 
and others connect with schools, local authorities, galleries, museums, and libraries. So the question I find myself asking now is, do literary studies or other disciplines get this sort of support? I don't know. I, I, I need to find that out. But I think even that brief glance at what's going on in the UK shows how creative writing programs take their students' prospect, prospects very seriously. And not, I think, just because um, they have to be seen to be addressing employability by their universities and other powers that be. I think there's a genu genuine aspiration amongst creative writing tutors um, to, to see their students leave equipped to make a living, but also to take a leading role in creating the kind of culture in which they want to inhabit. So um, that's all from me for the moment. I'm going to hand over to Laurie, who has a plane to catch, um, so she has to go next. Thank you. Yes, I will start with that disclaimer slash apology um, that I do have a flight to catch, but I have my business cards here so that if you have questions for me um, based on today's session, if you want to email me, um, I'm happy to do so. There are two writing life mantras, if you will, that I try to share with my students. And I primarily teach in low residency MFA programs where I'm accustomed to having a very diverse, wide range of ages of students uh, that I work with, everywhere from mid-20s to early 80s. I have a student right now who's actually 86, and he's fabulous. Um, and so I have, a, I have a range of student needs as far as what do they want to do with their writing and with their writing life. But across the spectrum, the two aspects I try to share with them is one, diversify your portfolio, and two, literary citizenship. What I mean by diversify your portfolio, because it sounds very Wall Street, um, is to look beyond your one genre of passion, to give yourself opportunity to explore and play in other genres, in subgenres, and to take your idea and look how can you sprout off other ideas from the work that you're committing, much so that if you're spending years researching something or laying out a novel or uh, you know, organizing your memoir, writing is like an iceberg. What ends up on the page is the top of the iceberg, and what you, the writer, put into it is everything else that we don't see below water. So my goal is to say, what can you do in the writing world and in the arts world with that other 70 or 80% of information and research and time and passion and tears that you've put into your work. If you're a memoirist, perhaps that means uh, working in, in short form in essays and getting those publications out there because nonfiction in the short form pays. I've had articles that have paid more than book advances. And I didn't intend to do freelance writing, we'll call it, but when I realized the paychecks involved, oh, I do intend to. <laughs> I intend to keep doing that. And even for fiction, when you think about um, if you are focusing on developing a strong setting uh, of a real-world place, for example, you're getting to know a region, you're getting to know a town. There's going to be things that you discover along the way, and you think, well, that doesn't fit in my novel. Perhaps, though, it could fit into a travel article. 
And if you like to travel, things like freelance writing can get you to visit places on someone else's dime. And when I'm speaking of that, it's not only the travel writing, which can sometimes pay well, and sometimes you spend more, I, I spend more on travel than I make on travel writing, but the other articles that I can do that supplement the rest of my writing life pay not only for me to write the poems and the, and the personal essays and the memoir, but they also give me opportunity to explore and go to places you know, off the beaten path to visit other cities. And then what I do when I'm going to those other cities is then I set up workshops. I set up readings. I try to capitalize as much as possible on one thing I'm doing to make sure that anytime I'm doing one thing, I'm trying to do at least half a dozen. Because then if I can have half a dozen of income streams due to one effort, then I'm supporting myself as a writer. For the literary citizenship aspect, I consider those opportunities as my invitation to put myself in a community that may not be my own and say, what can I go and support from other writers? What can I learn from different organizations, art or, uh, artists' communities, writing communities, bookstores, museums, people in other communities outside of my own comfort zone? What can I support while I'm there? And what can I share with others? And sometimes that might involve volunteering at an event. If I'm going to, um, for example, I'm going to Florida for AWP Tampa. What organizations are in the region that if I show up a week earlier, what can I do? How can I meet other people? And it's somewhat interpreted as, as networking from time to time of, oh, you're reaching out to other members of the community. I don't like to look at that as networking. I look, I look at that as opening doors for myself and opening doors for others. Today, I met a, a writer who is looking to put together a panel for next year, and she's a multidiscipline artist, as in she writes, but she also does uh, fine arts, and she does quilts and some neat fabric art. And she's looking to put together a panel for next year on artists who are writers and artists, because she thought that would be interesting. And she said, I can only think of myself and someone else, and we can't have a panel of two. I said, oh, I met someone from Northern California when I was at this event, and so I sent her the email from that. And then, oh, I met someone from Vancouver, BC when I was at another conference. And so it's giving someone else that opportunity. And as an anecdotal, how this all works of paying it forward, at the end of it, she said, oh, and by the way, I wanted to mention, I wanted to bring you out to New York for this event series that we're doing. When you help other writers, they remember you, and they know that you're a valuable piece of the community. We all kind of work in this ecosystem, or depending on where you are, it might be an ecosystem, but we all work together to make this life, and we're resourceful to one another. So when you think of how does all of that work for a postgraduate life, you don't have to be an undergrad student or an MFA candidate to do these things. You should be doing these things no matter what education level you have, or if you have no education whatsoever, being a valued part of the community, opening doors for others, those doors open for you. And perhaps that's volunteering for a festival, um, being a reader for a literary journal, all of those things are things then that you add to your resume. Your, your writer's CV, and it's skill building. And if you do that several years in a row, now you have a very strong resume 
when you go to apply for an arts-related job, perhaps in publishing or in teaching, and they can see that diversity of your portfolio, but of also you being a valued member of the community. I do have my cards up here, so thank you so much. So I'll go from the personal to the very general, uh, from Laurie's to my work. I've been um, given money by the government to look at the outcomes of creative arts degrees for students in creative writing and visual arts in Australia, China, and in the UK. And this means um, interviewing people, we're interviewing a lot of people who are within five to 10 years of having completed their degree to see what they're doing. Are they still making work? Are they still, making, are they still practicing their art form? Have they given up and are they working for a bank? Did somebody die and leave them heaps of money, which is really the best way to make a living as a writer? Um, <laughs> We're also in analyzing really big data sets, um, census data, financial data, um, graduate uh, destination surveys, to see what, where did people go? Where did they report themselves going when they first left their degrees and started earning a living? And what kind of income do, they, do people in, in the creative industries, and particularly, of course, writing, and for me, visual art as well, what kind of incomes and lives are they making over the course of a lifetime? Okay. Now, it's a, it's a tricky thing because on the one hand, almost every creative arts student, in whatever art form they are, know that there are no jobs for them. We know that they, you know, never, ever, ever see a jo job ad that says poet wanted, which is a bit tragic, but most of our students, if you, we have talked to them, there's a secret hope that they will be the one. They'll be the one who makes it. They'll be JK Rowling, but to work they're really proud of, etc., etc. People are encouraged by the impulse to write, or the impulse to paint, the impulse to make art, to give themselves over to three or four or seven years of, of education and put themselves in the position where they hope that they can actually make a living from their artwork. They're also encouraged in many cases by a line of thought that more or less starts with Richard Florida, an urban studies theorist from the States, originally from Columbia University. And he dreamt up the idea of the, quote, creative classes. Um, he's been an advisor to the UK government on creative and cultural industries. His ideas have been turned into curriculum material by universities around the world who thought, okay, we know that fine arts people don't make a living, but fine arts is like creative industries and we can, we can make it work, we can figure this out. What Florida and those who followed him posited was that because the arts sector is such a good contributor to GDP, around most of the world, a very, very high contributor to GDP is art, art, visual art, writing, performance art, film. And because whenever artists move into an urban area, property values improve, the whole area improves. So clearly, they said, arts degrees are very good for the economy, and therefore good for society, and therefore good for the artists. But none of them looked at what artists actually make from their artwork. Um, uh, there's a very good um, cultural economist called David Throsby, and he's worked out that poets and anglophone nations earn on average from their poetry $4,000 a year. And most of us earn $1.18, so a few people are earning $10,000, and that, make, that averages it out. Okay? When it dawned on Florida and, and his fellow travelers that really there aren't any earning opportunities for the creative class, that when artists move into a neighborhood, yes, it does improve, property values go up, and then the, the artists have to move out because they can't afford to live there anymore. At that point, the creative industries academics came in and said, well, employers want to hire creative people, so if we are training people with skills and creativity, creative thinking, creative making, then they're going to find heaps of jobs. They'll find them in the creative sector, and even more so, they can be what become what is called embedded creatives. 
That's where um, you work, do creative work outside the creative sector. So you might be a designer, for instance, but instead of working as a designer, you draw drawings for a car manufacturing company. You might be a poet, and you find yourself writing copy for the banking sector. Okay, so far, so good. Nothing has come of this, really. Florida has acknowledged 20 years later that he was wrong. The creative industry's researchers have decided to stop looking at artists and instead look at other creators of intellectual property, people like software designers who actually are marketable, more, more, more lucrative. The data my team and I have looked at shows that graduates of creative arts degrees in all the forms are about average, but average as, as all graduates in finding their first jobs after university. But what they find as jobs is usually part-time work or short-term contracts. Over a lifetime, you'll be delighted to hear, um, graduates of creative arts degrees earn no more than graduates of high school, people who didn't get a degree. So economically, it's a poor investment to earn a university degree in one of the creative arts. And if economy is what we worry about, then, you know, so far, so bad. It does get worse, though. <laughs> Sorry. Our research, and, and, and the research of quite a lot of other scholars in the area, shows that the career of a creative artist in any of the art forms, um, including writing, is difficult. Uh, there's an ever-increasing number of graduates chasing an ever-shrinking pool of opportunities. Arts grants are decreasing around the world, and platforms for professional creative artwork is, are de declining. Artists earn very low incomes. Their work lives are characterized by precarity, casualized employment, risky and precarious labor conditions, sorry, processes of self-exploitation whereby workers push themselves to the limit in an attempt to actually build up the kind of reputation that, that hope they hope will give them the autonomy to practice their art full time. Almost no one achieves this. Most graduates of creative writing and creative arts programs live under the logic of what Hans Abing calls the cruel economy and the exceptional economy because we are highly skilled, highly trained people, very capable, and we cannot cut a break. We do all the work for the, to the GDP earner, but we don't see the money from it. There's, there's another degree of difficulty. This is not, not I'll cheer you up at the end, I promise. Um, in an era when anyone can be an artist, you know, the internet provides platforms for writers and others who are not trained and are not professional to strut their stuff. And sometimes they get rich and famous. And I'll give you E.L. James and her Fifty Shades of Money. You know, why go? Why go to the expense and effort of completing a degree that, gives, that we know gives no economic return when somebody just waltzes onto the show, colonizes the space and markets, and those who invested no time or money in training can ace the field? Okay, it sounds grim, it is grim, but if you'd like a cheerful note, this is a very, very important one. Creative arts graduates on the whole report much higher levels of life satisfaction than do more highly paid people like lawyers and accountants and doctors. Writers and other artists earn significantly less than their fellow graduates, but it doesn't bother them as much as economists think it should. They just want enough to be able to keep doing their writing, doing their painting. They want to be able to hang out with other people who think like them and see the world like them. Most of them refuse the lure of the creative industry's discourse, which encourages them to become embedded creatives. A lot of them would rather drive cabs or work in shops and hospitality and preserve their intellectual and emotional energy to do their artwork later. A lot of others cheerfully take on low-paid and insecure jobs in the art sector. They work as interns or low-paid um, editors in publishing houses. They do administration and security in art galleries. So they, they remain embedded in a field that they love. And they hang out with people who see the world the same way that they do, through artists' eyes. 
And after all, students still want to take creative degrees, and people like us still work at establishing and maintaining courses where those students can be educated for economically impossible futures. All university courses must provide their graduates with a good feel for the disciplines in which they've studied, some technical conceptual skills, a map of the landscape into which they will emerge, and the tools to build a career. Okay? And they all claim to do that, and in most cases they do. But creative practice degrees need a bit more, because creative arts, as we know, differ from many other fields. Unlike pretty well all other graduates, including other humanities graduates, our students are likely to live what Bernard Lehir, cultural sociologist, calls the double life. So if you're a historian, if you're trained as a historian, you don't get work as a historian, you may never actually touch much, you might just read it as a hobby, but you are unlikely to have a really serious professional interest in it, you'll do something else. But if you're a creative arts, creative writing graduate, and you can't get a job there, you are very likely to keep making your work in a very intense and focused way off and on over the course of your lifetime. So you have one life where you are, where you are earning your income, your professional world. You have another life where you don't earn your income, but you earn your identity, your sense of, your sense of self. And that's the double life. So artists need to have the skills, resourcefulness, resilience, problem solving, to shift between the demands of the two worlds in which they live. And given this context, my team and I are trying to figure out some ideas, we haven't got very far, that might help us construct approaches to teaching and to content that provide creative students with what they need to craft satisfying, creative, ethical, and financially sustainable careers. I'll report back in 25 years when I know the answers. <laughs> Okay, I can assure you, Jen, that most of us do love Australians, okay? <laughs> um, I'm just curious here, uh, how many, uh, I know I, we got some teachers here, but how many of you are students? Okay, and how many of you know what career you're heading toward? Some of you. I don't see, you know, not everybody, though. Do you know what skills you have? That's the question. <laughs> Okay, we're going to talk a little bit about that. I'm Randy Albers. I was uh, chair of the fiction writing department at Columbia College in Chicago for 18 years, and I've been there since uh, Nostradamus. Um, Paul aptly subtitled this panel, Comparing Creative Writing Graduates for Lifelong Careers. Not career, careers, plural. Um, an article some time ago uh, pegged the number of career changes for graduates at about seven. Uh, and that's what I used to tell students at open houses and so on. And uh, but a re more recent article says that creative writing graduates will change careers four times before they're 30, and probably 12 to 15 times over their over their lifetime. Uh, creative writing programs often see their purpose as simply giving students space within which to write. Talk of careers, if any usually focuses on teaching, sometimes publishing or publishing-related jobs. Yet despite the incredible growth in creative writing programs, only one job opens up for every five institutions per year for all of the graduates of those programs to compete for, uh, along with some others. They're not good odds, and the trend toward use of adjuncts or non-tenure-track faculty promises to erode those numbers even further in the years ahead. I don't say this to discourage anyone from pursuing a teaching job. I really don't, okay? Uh, but it indicates why today's students need a realistic appraisal of career prospects 
and including alternatives behind, beyond the traditional tracks. In preparation for this panel then, I sent out an informal survey to a dozen Columbia College uh, Chicago grads and undergrads, alums who had achieved some measure of success. Uh, you should know that the fiction writing department where they studied sought a dual mission to give students the tools to become independent writers of fiction, nonfiction, uh, poetry and plays, and, to and two, to develop and enhance skills enabling them to compete in a wide variety of jobs. What, I wondered, what these alums have to tell us about the usefulness of their creative writing training. In particular, what skills were most helpful in their careers. Rob McDonald, following his MFA, <coughs> began a business generating web content in the early days of the net. Didn't know anything about computers, he was just writing the content. Uh, since then, he's been president of two different companies, founder of a strategic communication firm, and an award-winning columnist in Baltimore. The most common skills he developed were see it out here, having a vision, communicating, being precise, using your own words, trusting in inspiration, collaborating with others, listening, and sharing. Uh, at Columbia, we were using the story workshop approach originally originated by John Schultz. It's a very highly interactive process approach that emphasizes seeing in the mind, along with voice and extensive experimentation with techniques and forms and audiences and so on. Bill Burke um, echoed Rob, a teacher and editor of two national publications on his way to becoming what he terms a knowledge worker, social system designer, and process facilitator for the Chicago office of a worldwide consulting firm. He cites the ability to empathize, to put yourself in the point of view of others. Sounds like a fiction writer technique, right? The ability to envision situations, and more than just envision, understand and appreciate the ecosystem of a current or possible future situation. Seeing in the mind is a capacity that transcends writing and will support all sorts of activities. It is a great source of strength, perhaps even a superpower. Holding at least 13 different positions since he graduated in the 90s, Eduardo Eusebio has a resume that might make him an honorary millennial publisher, editor of three different magazines, CMS content editor, internet consultant, web architect, software sales engineer, web development consultant, director of web and application development, and now e-commerce projects and program manager. Those elements most crucial to his success, the semi-circle, story workshop classes are held in semi-circles, the semi-circle with seeing in the mind and what happens next. Semicircle also translates well into collaborative seeing and being able to communicate a shared and agreed upon vision during every stage of the software development life cycle. Cheryl Johnston works as a, worked as a publicist, grant writer, and managing director for the Story Week Festival of Writers before she began her own very successful author publicity business. She says, how to read like a writer and what makes a good story led to my present occupation as an independent literary publicist and event producer. Three important skills for a publicist are writing, research, and presentation. Also, it was great to be exposed to so many different voices. 
in our assigned reading, our author visits, and fellow classmates. Certain patterns, I think, begin to emerge in these, in these responses. Uh, writing programs trapped in product-based critique approaches tend to, uh, tend to teach little beyond reading and writing slash editing rewriting skills. But attaining flexibility leading to meaningful employment depends on our addressing a range of skills. What are we doing in the classroom, not only to develop reading and writing, but also to draw out higher level capacities for seeing in the mind, audience address, collaboration, conceptualization, abstracting, and most centrally, creative or imaginative problem solving. I think that's what writers mostly have to sell, okay? To take one instance, many alums over the years have told me they were surprised to find they possessed a skill in short supply in the work world, active listening. Uh, Rob Duffer, a freelance writer, teacher, a digital editor, and now the autos, I mean autos writer for the Chicago Tribune, says listening to diverse storytellers made me a better interviewer, storyteller, editor. Listening is an act of editing. How, we might ask, do we promote active listening in the classroom? How do we recognize and capitalize on it when it is happening? For one thing, we must develop the internal audience sense through coached oral reading, which enables a student to hear the organizing power of their own voice addressing an audience. Thus, Margaret Walkler links organizing my ideas so they could be accessible and compelling for a reader, articulating my vision with uh, precision and vitality. She links those to oral reading and workshops. Reading aloud forces you to slow down, listen attentively, and create a performance that's dynamic and captivating. Uh, since completing creative writing degrees at Columbia College and Cal Arts, she's been a staff writer at the Los Angeles Times, uh, editor at Dame Magazine, and a freelance writer for Elle, Cosmo, Rolling Stone, Nylon, New York Times, and others. She's also authored the recently released novel, Neon Green. <clears throat> As many, many well-known writers have worked day, day jobs over the centuries, Vonnegut, the car salesman, Stevens, the insurance lawyer, Williams, the doctor, Burroughs, the exterminator and private detective, so the example of Margaret and all of these other response, respondents remind us that graduates need not give up their creative writing in order to work a day job. David Baker combines documentary filmmaking, fiction writing, and freelance nonfiction writing with his day job as director of productions at Oregon State University. He asserts, I've come to believe that you need to do two things. Always write like it's the most important thing in the world, like it's your only true career, and like you're planning on quitting your day job to write full time. And second, you must continually work to find or create the non-writing career that you would never want to quit, even if you landed a major book deal. Finally, one of my favorite stories. After completing her undergrad degree and teaching briefly, <coughs> Alexis Thomas now owns a thriving business. Uh, Taboo Taboo, described in its web copy as, quote, a female-friendly adult store with a wide variety of lingerie, fetish clothing, adult toys, novelties, and bachelorette party goods available. 
Where does her creative writing training come into play? Research. Everything I do is research-based, <clears throat> and I spent so much time in the creative writing department researching. When I want to bring in a new lingerie line, I know everything about it. Same thing with toys. The sex toy world moves so fast. Maybe you knew this, I didn't. I know from the research skill I've, skills I've learned in college what to look for exactly to analyze the potential of an item. She credits reading as a writer courses for completely changing her approach to work. In traditional lit classes, she says, there was no end product of the analyzing. Because I was taught how to read to analyze what a writer was doing and then do it myself, I know how to do that in every aspect of my job. And I really think that is why my shop was voted number one sex shop in Chicago. You can cheer if you want to. These people tell us about the value of creative writing training for a variety of careers. All of them assert that they wouldn't have traded that training for anything. One said, I can't imagine life without it. Another said, you might say, everything else I studied was a waste of time. For students, you have to think creatively about how you market those skills, for, identify those skills and then market them. You have to think as creatively as when you're writing. Uh, our task as teachers, on the other hand, is to find the courses and the adjunctive supports enabling students to build flexible skills for the future. Most of us, most of all, we need to reflect upon both upon what skills we're teaching and how we're teaching them. If we're able to do those things well, our graduates, I would assert, would be uniquely positioned for success in multiple careers, and we will have helped them see a realistic yet visionary path to living creative, fulfilled lives. Thank you. Hi, uh, I'm Paul, Heather Paul Hetherington. I've come all the, all the way from Australia, and it's, it's great to be here. Um, today, I'm just going to close the formal part of this session by reflecting briefly on language use, and in particular on the ways in which writing programs and the practice of creative writing, and I'm going to especially refer to poetry, but you can sort of see this as a discussion of creative writing in general, may equip people to be more engaged more satisfied and better prepared citizens. And partly picking up a point that Jen made earlier, that there are many ways of judging uh, a successful life and, and successful work. And money obviously is important, but uh, some people earn a lot of money and are not very happy. Other people earn less money and are more satisfied. So I want to reflect on some of those issues. Contemporary societies are sophisticated and highly nuanced in, in their communication modes and styles. And professional and personal success often calls for a considerable capacity for understanding the subtleties of this communication, all the complexity and noise of communication around us. Our societies are also characterised by various forms of doublespeak. The term doublespeak brings to mind George Orwell's 1946 essay, Politics and the English Language. Orwell writes of how, and I quote, in our time, political speech and writing are largely the defence of the indefensible. Political language has to consist largely of euphemism, question-begging, and sheer cloudy vagueness. He goes on to say, the great enemy of clear language is insincerity. 
when there is a gap between one's real and one's declared aims, one turns, as it were, instinctively to long words and exhausted idioms, like a cuttlefish spurting out ink. The study of creative writing may not always directly prepare creative writing graduates for secure places in the workforce, although it often does do that. In my life, uh, I made my creative writing my first priority from the time I was an adolescent, and it led to lots of uh, personal and professional success in various ways. I didn't become rich, but I have, I've had a good life, and, and so it can lead to that kind of thing. Um, and I'd, I suppose more generally, though, many of these programs, through teaching more sophisticated ways of reading as well as writing, enable students to comprehend language as it is used in their societies, this society, more successfully to develop an understanding of sincere and insincere ways of speaking and to equip them to express themselves in nuanced ways. These kinds of skills are very valuable to many employers and employees. And I speak as someone who uh, you know, worked in a professional capacity where the people who expressed themselves best were mainly the best and most successful employees. Uh, that wasn't always appreciated by everyone in the organisation I worked in for a long time, but nevertheless, it was the case. And one challenge for the future is for universities and other teaching uh, colleges and so on to better communicate to employers how useful these skills are and also to ensure that creative writing courses continue to teach students how to analyse existing texts, whether these are classic novels or today's political speeches, as well as how to write new works. Those skills, in my view, go hand in hand. These issues are particularly important because since the Romantic period, uh, it's a long time now, uh, the idea of the more or less separate self, the individual, has been predominant in society and literature and literary characters preoccupied with their selves and their individual histories have been the protagonists of so many novels, from Dorothea Brooke in Middlemarch to Charles Ryder in Brideshead Revisited. Uh, many, many examples could be given. Such characters reflect our modern and ongoing interest in the intricacies of personal identity. And J.M. Fitzgerald identifies a poem, William Wordsworth's The Prelude, as the first work of Western literature that took the perspective that by telling one's story, one revealed truths about the self, leading to the contemporary notions that each individual constructs themselves and that each individual's story is his or her own uniquely. We believe this stuff now. We often take it for granted. But it was a new idea then uh, with the Romantics. And these ideas, because they continue to dominate contemporary ideas of self and individuality, uh, you know, uh, they, they raise lots of questions, I think, for us that we might look at sometimes more closely than we tend to do. Because despite these ideas, contemporary first world Western societies, those we live in today, while celebrating individual freedoms, have failed to solve many people's feelings of precariousness. 
Philip Cushman, and he was talking about the United States in saying this, argues that the current configuration of the self is characterised by a pervasive sense of personal emptiness. He wasn't talking about everybody, he was just talking about a tendency in society. And uh, he was thinking more broadly, I think, of Western culture in generally. He also said that our time is one of cultural brokenness and that modernity remains characterised by moral confusion, having no mutually agreed upon tradition that guides our daily practices. And Beatrice Appe more recently has argued that precariousness increasingly defines the conditions under which people work in all different sectors of activity. Um, you know, just in terms of whether we can expect to keep jobs, whether we know we will get jobs, if we have them, you know, will they stay the same? How are we going to be treated at work? What can we be... Uh, feel confident that we'll continue to be paid the kind of wages we want, etc. There's a whole lot of precariousness now in our society, even though we keep talking about freedom and so on. Now, um, I would argue that we potentially become more resilient if we master our use of language and our capacity for self-expression. And one form of self-expression is poetry. And I'm now going to talk about poetry, but... Other forms of writing may also work in similar ways. So if you're interested in writing novels or memoir or whatever it may be, you know, read those forms, if you like, into the word poetry that I'm using now. Although I do particularly want to single out poetry because I think it's a form that's often dismissed a little bit by mainstream uh, you know, society and that it needs to, we need to claim back its place. It's got a very important place in culture. Much modern poetry, and by modern poetry I mean a good deal of the poetry written since, say, about the middle of the 19th century, understands that beneath people's drive to construct a coherent self-narrative, which is what we're all trying to do, I think, with our lives, uh, that often a great deal is conflicted and broken. Poetry also understands that to acknowledge such conflict and brokenness may be a way of addressing the precarity of modern life I've just referred to, which is so often characterised by bewilderment in the face of the conventional and sometimes misleading narrative consolations of politicians and other opinion makers. I don't know any, whether any of you have felt in the last 12 months bewildered by what public figures have, have said, but certainly I have. And poetry speaks in a different way. It represents one way of constructing an authentic mode of speaking because it understands that much of experience is elusive and may even be unsayable, that key aspects of existence may only be suggested or intimated, and that precariousness may be acknowledged and articulated in a literary form, the lyric poem is what I'm thinking of, that is itself, to some extent, precarious and fragile. Margaret Dickey has observed that the properties of the lyric obstruct readings that are determined by a socially limited understanding of the self or the subject, or by a view of character as expressed in a cause and effect logic, or by an, an insistence that the poet can be understood by certain representative attitudes. In other words, she says, the lyric poem resists the totalizing ambition of such readings. Poetry opens out uh, the wish that a lot of people have, particularly in the public sphere, to limit and define and to polarize people. It opens up the space of discourse. Lyric poetry opens up and sometimes inimitably recognizes and represents 
vulnerabilities and a sense of the precarious. Phil Cohen has written that if poetry exercises a form of sociological imagination, which it does, at least implicitly, it may simply consist in this capacity to offer us a glimpse into another and still possible world in which the cliches of common sense and the media hype of spin doctors and marketeers have given way to an idiom of counterfactual truth, where so much that otherwise remains on the tip of our tongue is at last put into memorable words. Now, this isn't, these aren't alternative facts that I'm talking about. This is a profound idea of a counterfactual truth, an imaginative truth, a moving into the possible other of the imagination. Poetry is one way of better understanding the provisional and the inconclusive. It may not be able to solve issues attendant on contemporary precarity, but it provides opportunities for self-expression that connect to broad and salutary representations of the self. Poems, condensed linguistic gestures, open up human subjectivity, our sense of ourselves, to a, con to a consideration of wide and sometimes unstable complexities. Uh, we have a way, therefore, of encompassing broader visions and ideas. Poetry as a form speaks to humanity in its fragmentation, contradictions and intensities. In these difficult times, I think internationally, we are living in very difficult and troubled and precarious times. We may well need such opportunities for complex self-expression. Uh, such self-expression may be a way of finding our way Additionally, students who undertake creative writing programs have the opportunity to better understand complex language in the workplace, as well as in life in general, and also to understand the euphemistic complexities and sometimes false dichotomies that character, characterize much of contemporary politics. They also have the opportunity to learn to speak back to the rhetoric that dominates so much of the current news cycle, because they have tools to construct those alternative ways of speaking, which I think is very important. So these extremely useful and important skills, uh, they may be uh, as important as they have ever been, and let's hope that contemporary and future societies continue to value these skills and offer employment to those who possess them. Thank you. Well, I don't think we're obliged to fill up the time, so we might just um, end five minutes early, but I'd like to thank all my fellow panellists and you for making it such an interesting session. Thank you.